It's week 44 of 2021. I'm Smitha Nair. This is your Weekly Fix. COP26, presently underway in Glasgow, Scotland, is the UN Climate Change Conference that is held annually. COP stands for Conference of Parties. The main goal of this meeting, the 26th time this group has gotten together, is to keep the promise of the Paris 2015 Agreement alive. In 2015, in Paris, 195 countries agreed to hold the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. With global temperatures currently rising by 0.2 degrees per decade, human-induced warming reached 1 degree above pre-industrial levels around the year 2017. And if this pace of warming continues, would reach 1.5 degrees around 2040. Remember, this is the average global temperatures. Some places have already breached that mark. To keep temperatures from rising more than 1.5 degrees, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, considered the gold standard for climate science, projected that the world has to reach net zero carbon dioxide emissions by about 2050 and then hit net zero across all greenhouse gases by 2070. Let's break that down for you. What does net zero carbon emissions mean? Look, it's impossible to have zero carbon emissions, yeah? So to achieve net zero, a country's carbon emissions are balanced out or offset by removing an equivalent amount of carbon from the atmosphere. Among other things, this warrants stopping any further investment in fossil fuels, even retiring decommissioning of coal plants. It also entails absorbing that amount by carbon sinks, by restoring forests, for instance, or by carbon capture and storage technologies. Carbon capture sequestration is a technology that captures carbon dioxide from industrial facilities and stores it underground to keep it out of the atmosphere. You may have heard Elon Musk offering a $100 million prize for the best carbon capture technology. Now, India had so far been reluctant to agree to a net zero target, primarily on the principle of common but differentiated responsibility. What does that mean? Historically, the now rich nations allowed themselves a cheaper path to industrialization in the process emitting far more greenhouse gas emissions than developing nations. Remember, once the gases are emitted, they have a long residence. Once emitted, CO2, for instance, stays in the atmosphere for 150 to 200 years. How can developing countries like India continue to grow without pollution? In the interest of fairness and equity, it's only right that the rich countries, therefore, must face the biggest responsibility, that the burden for emission reductions must lie with the rich, industrialized nations. This also brings us to the issue of climate finance, where rich countries support developing ones through financing and technology transfer. How have rich countries fared on their climate finance commitments? 
I spoke to environmentalist Sunita Narayan from the Center for Science and Environment earlier this week. See, when the world accepted that climate change is real, way back in 1992, they agreed to a framework which said that the rich world will reduce, the poor world will get development rights to grow, but so that that growth can be different, there will be money and technology provided so that the polluters will pay for the rest of the world to grow differently. So the important thing to remember is that climate finance is not charity. It's not aid. It's about paying for the transformation in the still emerging world so that they can grow without pollution. Okay? That's the framing of climate finance. Now, the trouble with climate finance has been that it's been too little, too many words, too little in terms of actual action. Hmm. In 2015, um, in the Paris Agreement, and way before that in 2009 in Copenhagen, it was agreed that the developed world will provide $100 billion by 2020 uh, every year. And that would really be upscaled. Therefore, there'd be real money uh, available for paying for the transformation. Now, the problem with this has been, and this is the this, this is really something that should infuriate all of us. The problem is that there is no accounting mechanism. There is no measurement which tells you the, what is this $100 billion. So for instance, the OECD report, and more recently the report that has been produced for the G20 by uh, Canada and Germany, all claim that we are close to reaching the $100 billion mark. Right. But as Oxfam brought out in its analysis, a lot of this money is actually normal money, which comes as loans, bilateral loans, could come as private finance. OECD, according to Oxfam, has even put money which was coming for building roads, so development finance or infrastructure loans into climate finance. So, our finance minister last month, when she was in Washington, she also made this point very strongly saying, you know, we need a clear uh, measurement, a definition of what is climate finance. Now, the irony of it is that in spite of committees after committees, there's a global, there's a green um, climate fund that has been created with a whole paraphernalia in South uh, Korea. There are, there is UNFCC, which has a, uh, funding uh, committee, there is COP, everybody has not agreed on coming up with a clear definition on climate finance. What would qualify as climate finance? And this, in my view, is only adding to the distrust between the rich and the poor countries. But it also should tell us that when the rich countries are held to account, they don't want to be held to account. Okay, so I mean, we hear about verification and measurement and transparency and all the rest of the preachings that happen. But now they are the ones who are being told, Are be transparent about this. Tell us, what is this money for? I remember when CSC did a small analysis some years ago, looking at money that was coming for our solar project. The US had put all that money as climate finance, but actually it was money coming through the Exim Bank. Okay. Right. So, you know, uh, so I think it's important, uh, Smita, that we have for climate change is a really serious problem. 
It's an existential threat to the world. Countries like India are the biggest victims. But I think what we need is a louder voice now to argue that in the interests of all, a lot of these issues will have to be sorted out. This is not charity. This is clearly money that has to flow both in volume as well as in purpose. Hmm. Of course, this distrust of rich nations and skepticism over their claims is not unfounded. Look at how their promises on bridging vaccine access and equity actually played out. Gavi, the People's Alliance, received only a fraction of COVID-19 vaccine donations meant to be made by rich nations. Only 3.6% of people in low-income countries have received at least one COVID vaccine dose. The United States, the European Union, Britain, Canada are reportedly currently hoarding about 240 million surplus COVID-19 vaccines as they begin offering booster shots in their countries. Okay, uh, back to the subject at hand. Uh, Ms. Narayan, the reporting and analysis in the Western press tends to equate India with China on the responsibility each country bears or its contribution as emitters. Is that fair? I think the Western media lives on a different planet, in my view. And I have suffered them in many conference of parties. They are unable to call out the big polluters. Earlier on, it was the United States. Now it is China. And they would like to pick on the weak. And actually, the Western media can't deal with democracies. They prefer autocracies. Okay? So they are too scared of China to call it out. But India is a weak um, country because we're a democracy. I mean, the irony of the matter is the thing that they should be celebrating they actually use that against us because they get data from us, they get issues from us, they get voices. Right. They don't hear anything from China. There is no question about India and China to be hyphenated. In fact, we need to be dehyphenated. China is 10 gigatons, gigatons, okay? 10 billion tons of CO2 in 2019. Just to give you some numbers, okay? Hmm. Um, the US is five gigatons. And India as the third largest polluter is 2.8 gigatons. Please look at the, just look at the difference. Okay. China will occupy 33% of the space between now and 2030. By 2030, China will e equalize its per capita emissions with the United States at nine tons per capita per year. India will remain three tons per capita per year. Okay. So I think the Western media, frankly, um, and it's a tragedy of our times that the Western, and this is why I do believe that developing countries, emerging countries like India, our media has to be stronger, our voice has to be stronger, because I do think that the Western media has really played a very, very bad game in the area of climate change, a very noxious game in the area of climate change. Hmm. What is the Center for Science and Environment's view on net zero emission targets? Yeah. So net zero, Smita, is very clearly, it's a newfangled um, thing that has been thrown to us by IPCC. Let me, let me deconstruct it for you a little bit. Net zero means that in 2050, IPCC says the world has to be net zero. Okay? Mm. It has to half its emissions by 2030 and be net zero in 2050. That's to remain below a 1.5 degree temperature rise pool. You need to understand all those questions. And that's a 
67% chance to remain 1.5 degrees temperature ice goal. This is where we need to be. Net zero means that countries can emit as long as there are technologies that can soak up the emissions, which is trees, which sequester carbon dioxide, or you can pump it back into the ground under carbon capture and storage. So you can emit, but you have to live below what is the ability that you can absorb the emissions. Now, um, CSE's view has been that net zero is a complete distraction. It's a way to increase the inequity in the world because if the world has to move to uh, net zero by 2050, then the developed world should have moved to net zero in 2030. Okay? By pushing the deadline on all of us for 2050, it's clearly a way to be able to erase the principle of equity and injustice and bring everybody onto one thing saying, everybody has to meet the same target on the same date. Okay. okay. And the fact is net zero plans are very, very vague when it comes to what will countries do. It's more an aspirational goal um, for most countries. Therefore, what we are saying, front load your emissions and actually reduce emissions by 2030, stop talking about 2050. But it's a good conversation, it's a good way to pressurize India. China has already said 2060. In my view, India should declare 2070, which means nothing to nobody. 2070, we're all dead by then, okay? 2060, we're all dead by then when China has declared. So I think the fact is this, the, we, the world, Unfortunately, the rich world is very clever in changing the goalposts and the, the narrative and the discourse, and we are always just catching up with it. And that is the tragedy of climate change. But the trouble is that it's too serious an issue for us to keep playing games and for them to keep playing games. Right. A day after I recorded this conversation with Sunita Narayan, Prime Minister Modi announced a net zero target for 2070 for India. Importantly, he announced India will take its non-fossil fuel energy capacity to 500 gigawatts by 2030 in order for us to meet 50% of our energy requirements from renewables. Additionally, Modi said India will bring down its total projected carbon emission by 1 billion tonnes by 2030 and the carbon intensity of the economy to below 45%. Characterizing the promises made on climate finance as hollow, Modi sought a commitment of $1 trillion every year from the developed world to meet the increased ambition on climate action. The developed world, as Sunita Narayan pointed out earlier, has failed to even mobilize the promised $100 billion a year from 2020. That said, how will India meet these new ambitious targets? Consider this. Currently, about 70% of India's energy demand is met by two fossil fuels, coal and oil, as per the 2020 statistics from the International Energy Agency. About 78% of India's electricity generation comes from thermal power, most of which is coal-based. So to move from being overwhelmingly dependent on fossil fuels for energy needs to meeting 50% of our energy requirements from renewables in less than 10 years is a very tall order. Journalist Nitin Sethi, who has for long been reporting on climate change, tweeted, We've seen Prime Minister Modi's government being fuzzy with its targets 
and particularly with actual achievements domestically, I wonder if we're entering that phase internationally with the announcement at COP26, eagerly awaiting the actual new NDC document. NDC here is Nationally Determined Contributions. Each country's efforts to reduce emissions and deal with the climate change are outlined here. Well, we expect to hear more details in the days ahead. This podcast is by no means exhaustive, but I certainly hope I've been able to put in context some of the India-related COP26 developments for you. More later. Have a good weekend.